0: welcome to the Brave Daily Podcast. At Brave Daily, we offer Logos Bible software coaching, Christian book reviews, and relevant interviews to reflect on life as a believer to help keep us all growing. For more information, head to our website at bravedaily.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Brave Daily Podcast. My name is Ryland Brown. I'm the director of production for Brave Daily. I'm also a pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I've got two very special guests with me today. Uh, Karen Mason and Scott Gibson have decided generously and graciously to sit down and talk about their new book, Preaching Hope in Darkness, Help for Pastors in Addressing Suicide from the Pulpit. It came out in 2020. Uh, It's on Lexham Press. I recently just got finished uh, reading it. And let me tell you, it is a powerhouse of a book. It is a gift uh, to the church. And I think this is something, we're going to talk about this in, in the interview, but if you're a pastor and listening and you've not dealt with this in your congregation yet, you will. Or maybe you're you're not a pastor and you're listening. This book is still so insightful on how to minister to families and how to be connected and not let the the darkness get into these uh, sort of situations. As believers in Christ, we really want the light to shine. And so, Dr. Karen Mason, she's the professor of counseling and psychology at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. She's been there since 2016. She speaks multiple languages. She lived in Pakistan working as a teacher for a number of years. she also has a wealth of experience in behavioral health and suicide prevention. And then also with us is Dr. Scott Gibson. He holds the David E. Garland Endowed Chair, and, uh, and he serves as the Director of the Doctorate of Philosophy and Preaching Program at George W. Truett Theological Seminary, which is at Baylor. He's a co-founder of the Evangelical Homiletic Society, currently the editor of the Journal of the Evangelical Homiletic Society, and I'm a member uh, Scott of the Society, <laughs> and so when I saw that you had written this book, I had a double interest in in talking to you. It's a fantastic journal, a uh, wealth of information, and it always um, encourages me to think deeply about preaching. Well, Scott, Karen, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Christmas is coming up. Uh, before we get into your book, we always try to ask some sort of question that has nothing to do with your book. Uh, Christmas is coming up. We're in Advent. What is one Christmas tradition that is just a non-negotiable for you? And it might be a pet peeve. It might be something you avoid. But what's a tradition that's just non-negotiable?
1: Scott, Easter. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we always decorate our tree together, my wife and I. And uh, we just did it last night. And uh, that's just a part of who we are. We go through a a memory log of uh, experiences when we look at these uh, different ornaments and we Mm -hmm. talk about them and thank God for the people who gave them to us or the uh, scene or experience that we had with them. And uh, I I had a, a grandmother who gave me these two angels that I put on this tree just last night. And I, she's long gone, but her memory rests in me. And then I was a young Sunday school teacher and I got a raggedy Ann and Andy from a little kid who now
0: they're in their (laughs) fifties.
2: And it's a reminder to me of God's great work in people's
0: lives. Now, are you a fake tree, an artificial tree, or do you all have a real tree every year? Well, right now, real tree. Okay. Uh, Yep. We went Um, out to a Christmas tree
2: farm and and got it uh, on a snowy day. We're in Pennsylvania right now for the
0: holiday. Oh, that's great. What about you, Karen? What's a Christmas tradition that's just non negotiable?
1: Yeah, well, you, my parents were missionaries. So I've just, you know, lived in so many places. It's, it's, it's hard to even grab onto the idea of tradition given all the, the change in my life. But we always had stolen for Christmas breakfast. And, uh, and that's a non-negotiable. Even though, you know, a great deal of my family is gluten-free, I did break the gluten-free <laughs> idea and have stolen for Christmas breakfast. It's a non-negotiable.
0: <laughs> now, for those of us who might not have the same culinary expertise that you do, what is stolen?
1: It's a kind of bread that's sweet. And uh, I have to say, you know, some of my family doesn't really like those candied fruits, but it's Mm -hmm. got candied fruits and raisins and nuts and things like that. (laughs) It's not a fruitcake, though.
0: Fair, well, fair enough. No, that's yeah. fair. Well, uh, that, that's exciting. I do hope you all have a, a good Christmas coming up. We are here to talk about your new book, Preaching Hope in Darkness, Help for Pastors in Addressing Suicide in the Pulpit. I was, I've been in vocational ministry for uh, 17 years now. And when I saw this title, I was so excited because this is something I wish I would have had early on, um, and it's not just for new ministers, new pastors. It's, it's everybody needs this book. But it's one of those things, especially as a young minister, if I hadn't experienced it, I would just kind of look past it. And looking back, I think this is something I wish I would have had in my wheelhouse. And now that I've bought it and read it, it it's, it's very, very helpful. But you all come from very two different fields, a preaching professor and then a psychologist, a suicide preventionalist. How did you all connect to write a book like this?
1: Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Scott. Well,
0: we we worked together. I
2: was at Gordon Conwell for twenty-seven years before I went down to Baylor, and so um, Karen, you t- talk about approaching me about this.
1: Yeah, exactly. I I uh, so there. It's a little bit long, but this is an important part of the story, Rylan. So I'll I'll give you the whole background. So I you, you know in my we're all doing research around suicide prevention with faith leaders and faith communities. I, I heard a military chaplain once tell me, you know, when I preach, I assume there's a suicidal person listening. Mm. And that just intrigued me. Uh, and I, I really wondered, you know, how do you preach with a suicidal person in mind? Uh, and and so the story is that Scott uh, was teaching part of a D-Men. We, we, we were doing a D-Men for Haitian pastors, <laughs> and Scott was teaching the preaching part, and I was, uh, I, I've lived in Haiti, you know, grew up in France, so, um, you know, I was, was, uh, had a different role, but I was sitting there in that preaching class, listening to Scott preach for a whole week, and I said, oh my goodness, I have to write a book with Scott, <laughs> I, I I just have to collaborate with Scott and try to figure out you know what do we mean by preaching with a suicidal person in mind. So I was just so thrilled and delighted when Scott said yes. And I don't think I don't think we really understood what was in front of us. I, mm-hmm. it, it was a very uncharted territory. But I'm so thankful Scott was willing <laughs> to try this with me.
2: Yeah, and I'm thankful, too. You mentioned uh, in, uh, before we recorded, uh, Ryland, that you had an interest in thanatology. When I was in college, uh, I knew I was going to go into pastoral ministry. And so I took a course through the College of Nursing. I went to Penn State University on death and dying. And it was that course that really opened my eyes to what um, I would be dealing with up front as a, as a pastor. And, um, and then at that time, uh, my, my aunt uh, died by suicide. And that coming together was always in the back of my mind. So when Karen approached me and said, let's, let's do this, I thought, hmm, uh, this is something that's so needed. I'll never forget the, the funeral for my aunt. And mm-hmm. um, the pastor, I went up and spoke with him. And I was just in college at the time. And he, he turned to me and he said, this Family is a mess, mm. and that stayed with me all these years. So how could I, with Karen, help families that are in a mess mm. that that are dealing with this this matter of of suicide and it is such an intrusion and an unwelcome intrusion and um, how how do we help them get through this and uh, so that really is part of the background for us as we move forward with this book.
0: And I think you, as a reader of the book, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I took away, I was kind of expecting a book about how to preach suicide sermons, but it's much broader than that. It certainly includes that, but for me, it was really about how to minister uh, in light of a suicide, or maybe uh, someone's thinking about suicide, and as as a vocational pastor, as a preacher, I've learned you know my interest is really where I want to be is in the hospital room, even though that's different today, but God works in those moments mm-hmm. of despair and that brokenness, and we have the opportunity to really bring some good and hope and clarity, and uh, so it, it's just a very, I thought the sample for handouts of survivors Uh, was just extremely helpful. Uh, I'm going to refer to that uh, multiple times, I'm sure, throughout my my ministry. What encouragement can you all share for pastors who might not feel comfortable preaching about this topic, and it might not be for them at a personal level. It might be they know their congregation, and they know the culture of their congregation. This is sort of taboo. We don't want to talk about it, especially with all the issues of mental health and the, the wide diversity of thought there. What encouragement can you share for someone who might be listening who feels not so comfortable about this topic? Go ahead, Karen.
1: Well, you know, one thing that strikes me, Ryland, is just that um, you know people sitting in the pews want to have a sense of of, of relevance. You know mm-hmm. that 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 the preacher is preaching some in some senses to them to 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 their needs to you know their questions and, and 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 I really think it's a that there are suicidal people sitting in the pews and I think you know there needs to be relevant messages and I think one of the points we were trying to make in the book is and I hope it came through clearly that the, the church is key mm-hmm. you know we, we do not want the church and we also don't want pastors and preachers to to not wade into, for sure, an area that's, that's messy, that's, that's complicated. And I, I think um, uh, Scott said it so well in the book, just that, you know, pastors avoid it because of that messiness. But at the same time, you're losing something at the same time by avoiding it.
2: Yeah, and, and um, the, the, the matter of, of the hope of the gospel is something that is a constant in preaching anyway and so leveraging that for your preaching will be a less uncomfortable recognition as you continue to preach God's Word mm-hmm. and so we've got hope and we have hope from, from the gospel and why not allow that to spill over into our our preaching and our ministry, and it it will then not then something like this, uh, a tragedy of a a suicide takes
0: place. Oh, that that is so helpful. I I used to preach in Nashville, North Carolina, and this is so true when when you say that you have to assume someone is suicidal. Uh, There was a lady there, she was in her 80s, and I thought she had her life together. Uh, I helped move her into her house and she made an offhand comment. I was leaving. She said, I'm very tired of all this mm-hmm. and I didn't pick up on it and would have had no idea that she was suicidal. And then she attempted to take her own life that following Monday, just two mm-hmm. days later. And so you're you're exactly right when we have to assume uh, that someone might be there. And you do well helping us see suicide in the context of both mental health and the spiritual nature of it—it's a good balance that doesn't minimize mental health or spiritual issue. But it's not uncommon in the church, as I know you all know, for someone to say that depression, suicidal thoughts, are a sign that you don't have enough faith. How do we push back against that? What, what do we what do we say that can help reshape that conversation?
1: Well, I think you know we have so many examples of of people throughout. The Bible throughout history who uh, Christian people who who have struggled with depression who 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 even struggled with thinking about dying uh, and and so I think it's really hard to 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 make the point that um, you know only uh, only no i 've heard this said only non-Christians are people who think about suicide or people who have somehow walked away from their faith. We just have examples of so many people uh, who were people of faith who struggled with these these thoughts of death and thoughts of suicide. so uh, uh, you know, I think we have to look at the Bible as a whole Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's not an uncommon experience of men and women, whether you're a believer or not a believer, uh, to experience uh, depression, uh, uh, loss, uh, discouragement, um, and and so to help people to see that it's part of a fallen humanity, mm-hmm. that that's who we are, and... Um, and therefore, it's easy for us to to give up hope and to uh, lose heart. Mm-hmm. And um, and our task as preachers and uh, pastors and leaders is to help people to recognize that there is incredible hope, mm-hmm. and that uh, it comes through Christ, our um, our redeemer
0: of hope. Mm-hmm. Amen. No, that, that that's powerful and. Karen, you you can probably speak to this on this issue at, with your background in psychology, but you know that it's not di- I think we try and sometimes separate our spiritual faith side from our bio- biology and our person. I'll confess on the show I've, I've been depressed and I've gone to counseling. Uh, Lexapro is a gift from God, yes. um, and so you know maybe could you speak to that a little bit about the holistic person? the integrated it's not separate categories but as you know Scott you've talked about it's hope it's still that message but can you give us some reassurance that medicine might be needed and that's okay
1: absolutely and uh uh, thank you so much Ryland for your transparency I think that kind of courage is what's going to help us get past some of this stigma so thank you for that um, and absolutely, you know, the thing that always strikes me is, uh, you know, uh, if if a Christian has cancer, we don't expect their faith to, on a, on some level, cure uh, that cancer. It's 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 a biological issue. The person's going to, you know, seek medical treatment for this. Uh, you know, uh, mental health issues are similar, are, are like that also, right? It's, it's there's, there's a way where your brain is functioning differently when you're depressed than when you're not depressed, and so um, to, to be able to reach out for help for that uh, and seek after uh, medical treatments, like as you're pointing out, medications like Lexapro, uh, but also we know just so much. Uh, also about just human functioning. Uh, And, and, and we know that through, um, you know, all of the research that's been done around counseling and, and helping people who are depressed, helping people who are suicidal. And so, and to not take advantage of that, uh, you know, Paul tells Timothy, you know, Use wine for your stomach's sake, right? Mm-hmm. Use, use the medication of the day to help yourself physically. I think to not take advantage of that, um, uh, you know, leaves people really struggling.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and I would assume we probably have someone listening today who might be suicidal. And, you know, I, I want to encourage, I think we all would for you to reach out to someone and to not take a temporary problem and try to fix it with a permanent solution mm-hmm. um, and, and to really talk to someone. And that—that that is my next question as a pastor. You, you list in your book skills that pastors need to have in this area of listening and risk assessment, referrals, uh, Sabbath rest, uh, how to take suicide attempts seriously, and ministering to survivors. At what point, I'm not trained in this area, uh, like either of you are, at what point do I need to refer to someone. Let's think of the average pastor in the average office who has some training, but there, there's there's a level there where it's saying, hey, you need to talk to someone else who has a little bit more. And then also, what can we do? A follow-up to that is, how do we have that conversation that is, doesn't make it feel like to the other person like we're giving up on them,
1: mm-hmm. passing
0: them off to someone else?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I, I have heard this from pastors so much that you really want to stay part of the the treatment team on some mm-hmm. level, and, and I don't want to equate, you know, just the importance of a person's faith and, and bringing God into the, just the struggles that people are having with, you know, the, the medical treatment or the counseling that a person hopefully is going to receive, um, but yes, so uh, one of the things that I think is so important is to not pass the person off, right, to, to, to in fact, to, because they still are people who are struggling spiritually, potentially, mm. right? With this, this illness that they're experiencing. They still need you to be mm. present in their life, to come alongside them, to help them spiritually. Um, uh a, a, a wonderful book, Darkness is My Only Companion by Catherine Green-McCray, talks about just the importance of her faith as she struggled with depression and suicidal thinking. So uh, you, you you don't want to just send the person off to, okay, go get some treatment and, and not remain actively uh, present in this person's life and just to help remind them of the presence of God and the presence of his people as they're going through this time of struggle. Uh, but when to make that referral, I, I would argue that a person who is struggling with suicidal thinking should be referred to a mental health professional without you handing them over and in, on some level pulling out of, mm-hmm. pulling out of whatever's going on.
0: No, thank you for clarifying that. That is that is such a helpful way uh, to look at it. Um, and then the question when we're talking about the ministry, you know, we minister to people who might be going to that, but then how do we, what are some practical things that you talk about it in your book, but what are some practical things we can do to minister to survivors after the fact?
2: Well, one of the uh, implications that Karen was talking about is that you, you're not... Uh abandoning them. And uh, that's what often happens is that, um, uh, we move on to the next thing, but their thing is still their thing. Mm. And, uh, they're, 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 uh, still experiencing it in, in a, a multiple number of ways. I, uh, after the writing of the book, um, uh, we have a friend whose, um, son, uh, died by suicide and uh before he killed himself he killed his wife and his two children Mm. and uh it happened uh right around Christmas time Mm. and this Christmas is coming up and um uh, I was just speaking with her we're we have a condo in Pennsylvania and and she's two condos away from us and they just had their thanksgiving with their two remaining her two remaining children and their families but uh she said i i just have to go on with my the family i have but it still hurts mm-hmm. and even though we move on they are living the nightmare in many ways mm-hmm. and so uh, just that one reminder don't don't forget them sending them a letter on the uh, uh, anniversary uh, giving them a phone call um, helping them to be able to uh, know that that you're there and that they're not alone and of course praying for them is uh, letting them know that you're praying for them I pray for her every day uh, it's it's a hard hard thing uh, but it, it's that ministry of presence
1: Mm -hmm.
2: that is so key. Mm,
0: That's so true. Uh, I had someone tell me years ago that one of the best things you could do, not just in cases of suicide, but all death, is to just send a note at the time of year, because they're remembering, they're thinking about it. Um, And there was a book I read several years ago called Lament for a Son, uh by Nicholas, just a fantastic uh father. His son died, I think, in a mountain yeah. climbing accident. And it's just his musings on grief. But he said every he's talking about a family gathering. Everybody's here, but we're not all here anymore. Yeah. And uh, and so that presence is is so important. Uh just to remember those, and you all do a good job of talking about that in your book, the sermon side, but also just the presence that people don't remember but they re- might remember Well, I needed that message at the moment. Um, and so let's talk about the preaching aspect of the, the funeral sermon. What texts do you think, uh, are appropriate to to go to and maybe even some practical questions of how long it should that sermon be. And then, you know, the family, they might ask for interesting requests when you have that conversation They're they're, they might not be thinking clearly. And, uh, you know, who would be at those moments. So how do we think about the funeral sermon and the preacher's role, the text selection, themes, all those sorts of issues? Well, one of the things
2: you want to keep in mind is asking yourself, who are you as a preacher? Um, Some preachers see themselves as extensions of their congregation or servants of their congregation in the sense that they will do what their congregation will ask them to do, whatever. Um, But uh, we are ministers of the gospel, uh, God's great good news, and we don't want to forget that. Um, so often, what happens is that um, we accommodate in ways that our culture is accommodated in terms of um, funerals in general. And um, I'm I'm one who who really wants us to remain connected to the gospel and the hope of the gospel because I've done funerals for nonbelievers and believers, but what holds them together is the the gospel. And so there might be uh, uh, passages that the uh, family might suggest that uh, would be appropriate. Again, you would want to assess that. Um, um, Also, how do you shape a funeral service? Again, it's about... The hope of the gospel and so what do you include and what do you not include a lot of ceremonies or what have you funeral services include people getting up and speaking and so forth I don't do that um, I say that for the if there's a reception dinner or whatever afterwards for people to have the opportunity to get up and speak then but i i i I want people to know that that there is Hope in Christ, and I don't want them to to lose sight of that. So that might mean then I would have a bevy of passages that I could draw from that would um, come in handy, so to speak, in those kinds of moments. But I don't also want to be a person who uses the same text for every sermon that I do. Um, I, I I remember a, a story of one of my professors of ministry at Gordon Conwell telling me about a uh, a woman who uh, husband had died and the preacher got up to preach and it was the same sermon that he had used um, in a, in a funeral about a month before same sermon and um, and she she was a, a bright engaged Christian woman and was greatly disappointed and disheartened because um, it was a, a, a a leftover, warmed up, microwaved sermon. Mm-hmm. And every person who dies, whether it's by suicide or by other means, is a unique individual. And mm-hmm. so the question is, is how can this service focus on the unique gospel that perhaps this unique individual um, needed or lived, but tragically um, uh, ended his or her life in this way of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. So so it's, it's that kind of thing where you're walking a line which is a fine line of the gospel and being able to be faithful to that. And um, how long should one preach? Um, again, recognizing the context in which a, a funeral takes place anyway, not the least of which a, a, a suicide, people aren't wanting to hear a long dissertation. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're wanting to hear a clear, clear voice, a clear message of the hope of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so my thinking is 10 minutes of of, of a sermon, not uh, 50 minutes or whatever. And I I know there are some traditions where Mm -hmm. the the services are much longer. And in in many ways, the congregation has been trained to expect that. Mm But um, in, in a lot of contexts, it's, it's uh, something that is often much shorter, mm. um, but very clear.
0: Oh, that, that is so helpful. And I loved what you just said about, you know, not microwaving a sermon. It made me think of it's one way that we can uh, believe and live out as preachers that a person who dies by suicide, we still believe they're created in the image of God. They're loved by God. And to not give that person's funeral a canned response is one of the ways that we can elevate the uh, sanctity of life. And so very helpful uh, to think through. Um, and, and I would say that for any funeral would be good advice. Karen, you, I don't think this was, this is a book mostly about pastors, but I wanted to ask, because we're going to have people in our audience who aren't pastors. Uh, they're people who love the Lord and love to study his word. and but their pastor might read this book and talk about things, issues like this, or they might go to a funeral. How can we encourage moms and dads? What's good advice for parents when they need to talk to their children about suicide?
1: Mm, yeah. Uh, perhaps because a suicide occurred in the community. Is that?
0: Yeah. In the community or even the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it, you know, I think kids, I've got three kids, 11, seven, and two, and I am amazed how much they pick up on.
1: Yes, Exactly. You know, I, I I learned that the hard way with two two very young children in Haiti with that whole country falling apart, and I'm trying to figure out what to tell my children, right, in order to, to give them a sense of safety in the midst of all that upheaval, uh, but I did find out that kids actually do know quite a bit about what's going on, uh, even though you're not uh, saying it. And one thing, too, I know about kids is that if you don't say something, they make it up. <laughs> they, 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 in the vacuum of information, they just develop their own idea, which can be worse, which, you know, uh, an idea that is uh, more than inaccurate. Um and so I think, though, that different kids are going to have different developmental abilities in terms of being able to understand. I think it is important to uh, think about that developmentally. You know, what can it, what can this age child really understand? I think it's important to really help children know that um, you know they're safe. Uh, you know, mom and dad are going to do whatever we can to help you. Stay safe. Uh, uh, it, it, depending on the age, it might be appropriate to even say, "Hey, if, you know, uh, if that were to ever happen to you, you know, would you come talk to me?" And you know, just to keep those lines of communication open between parent and child. Um, so uh, I, I would think about it developmentally, but I would also think about. Sharing the information that you can share, you don't want them uh, to find out about it from their, you know, mm-hmm. neighborhood friend down the street mm-hmm. who, who, who might come up with ideas that you you actually don't want them to come up with. So um, say, uh, you know, I, I think we say in the book, we were writing the book when 13 Reasons Why came out uh And perhaps you're familiar with it, but mm-hmm. you know, I just think that uh first- first of all i'm glad my kids are older, and i don't have to deal with making those decisions because i I really dislike that series for thousands of reasons, not just a suicide reason but um but I do think i I know some parents made the decision to watch the series with their children so they mm-hmm. could talk about it, and help the children think about different ways of, of of going through life besides what they're seeing on the screen. You
0: know, that is so helpful, and and I think, too, Scott has, you've mentioned several times during this interview, and it is almost on every page of the book but the hope of the gospel. Uh, it is a hope-filled book, and it's, it's a serious subject, uh, but you all have done a, a great job of helping us see the bigger picture. I've got one one final question. Um, Suicide in a congregation or any event that happens in the life of a congregation, it can drain a pastor, especially Mm -hmm. if they're having to minister. And in your book, you talk about Sabbath rest. Um, What does that look like? What does that Sabbath rest look like for a pastor? And how does he or she know it's time for them to talk to someone else? Mm -hmm. I've gone through burnout. I didn't even know I was burned out until long after I was burned out. So what are some of the warning signs that we should be looking for? And this, this, I think, applies to anybody, but what are the warning signs that preachers and pastors need to look for that, hey, it's time to, to do the checkup?
2: I'll just say a couple of things and then, Karen, please. Um, I was a pastor and it seemed as if when I was doing um, a funeral, a death would take place and then two more would happen. It just seemed like they came in threes. And um, that was just one aspect of pastoral ministry. You're dealing with congregational tension and growth and discipleship and ministry and preaching on Sundays and sometimes twice on Sundays and then having Bible stuff. So there's, uh, we go into pastoral ministry often with um, uh, these uh, rosy uh, glasses of what it's going to be like to train people in Jesus and, and, um, uh, was one of our former presidents, that Gordon Conwell, used to say, he said, uh, some sheep bite. And, uh, and it's not as easy as it, as it seems to be from a distance. And so what often happens is you, we get caught up in the rigors of ministry and, and forget the uh, uh, importance of, of, of looking at ourselves. And, um, and I don't know exactly when the best time is for that to, to um, uh, move us into a, um, um, another spot of, of getting out of burnout. But one of the issues is of, of being intentional of taking some time off mm. every week. Mm-hmm. That's no, that... the, the intentionality of that. Karen?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, Scott and I have written about this because it it, it it's a concerning issue, right? Uh, you know, if you look at some of the research, pastors have higher rates of, su- of um, not suicide, I'm sorry, of depression and anxiety than, uh, you know, people in the general population. I think the fact that pastors get put up on a pedestal is just a lethal combination there, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being put up on a pedestal, I think uh, sometimes we uh, sometimes pastors ministers of the gospel can start to start to buy into that that maybe they aren't human like absolutely everybody else and uh, uh, so Scott and I have a, a colleague at Gordon Conwell named dr. David Curry who I've heard him say this a million times pastors are just like everybody else, only more so. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and I think that pastors really need, first, they need to start out with just that assumption, hey, I'm a human, I'm in an incredibly stressful job, and I need to be aware of this. And uh, so, as Scott said, taking that, you know, no one exe- is exempt from that fourth commandment, right? So uh, it, it, it's, it's a commandment for pastors, too, that there has to be that regular uh, rhythm of work and rest. Um, but the the thing that, um, the two things I'll say about kind of getting to that burnout place is that you can tell you're there when you stop caring. So when somebody calls you up and uh, wants to talk about X and you're sitting there saying, I just don't even care anymore about X. Uh, that's a point at which you might have, uh, that's a point at which you might want to reach out for some help. The other thing I'll say is that I have talked to so many seasoned pastors who talk about the importance of meeting with a group of fellow pastors. And I think one of the things that the fellow pastors can do for you is to look into what's going on and, and give you feedback. So even if you don't recognize it yourself, this this group of seasoned pastors that you're traveling through ministry with can sometimes speak in to what's going on.
0: Wow. I feel like we have just scratched the surface. I could talk to you all, both of you, all day on this subject and for those listening, we have just scratched the surface. This book, I want to encourage you to get it whether you're a pastor or not. I think it's going to be helpful for families, but especially for pastors and preachers. It's going to do a couple of things. One, it's going to help you give you a context for the actual funeral, but then as we've talked about earlier, it's about ministering to survivors and preparing a church, and it's about giving hope. It's the hope of the gospel speaking in a broken world. We are broken people, and so I want to encourage everyone to uh, get this book. If you'd like a copy of the book we're going to have links in the description please uh please check it out have it in your library uh maybe buy a copy for a friend uh especially this time of year i think coming up on christmas uh this is going to be pertinent more more so than ever scott and karen thank you so much for sitting down with us today you've just been absolutely wonderful and delightful and a joy to be around you're welcome and thank you
1: thank you
0: thank you you. so uh Thank you all for listening today. If you need help with Logos Bible software, your library, any of the tools, sermon preparation, go to our website at bravedaily.com and sign up with one of our coaches. We'd be happy to help. Until next time, God bless.